Welcome to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Originally aired on KGOS and KERM in Torrington, join Jeff, Jerry, and their special guests as they talk all things gardening in Wyoming. Our Lawn and Garden Podcast helps you improve your home garden or small acreage. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. Our guest today is Donna Hoffman. Good morning, Donna. How are you today? Good morning. It's good to see you both. Good to see you as well. Jerry, it's always a pleasure to have you in the studio again today. How are you? Hey, really well. Thank you so much. Very good. So let's take a few minutes and listen to some words from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. You are listening to the Lawn and Garden Podcast. Presented by University of Wyoming Extension, extending the land-grant mission across the state of Wyoming with a wide variety of educational programs and services. Visit us at wyoextension.org. There, you can find your county office, browse our many programs, and access dozens of free publications on gardening and so much more. Hello again, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. And our guest today is Donna Hoffman. She is an extension horticulturist in Natrona County, located in Casper. Donna, you have mentioned that it's hot and dry. I think it's hot and dry everywhere. So <laughs> It is hot and dry. Uh, our our state-recognized uh, state weatherman seems to be thinking about some monsoon weather coming, but we sure have not seen it um, in recent weeks, and, and we have just seen the hot, dry weather coming up out of the Four Corners area and spreading that heat all over uh, the Great Plains and, and the, the eastern side of our state. So, yes, we have seen hot. Most of our lawn grasses are cool season grasses, and we all love that it greens up early in the spring and we get to enjoy it for our spring holidays and spring activities and then July comes and the grass is not happy because this is not the cool season of the year this is the hot season this is the hot season and that cool season grass wants to go dormant and just rest when it is so hot give me a break it's just hot exactly it's kind of like my dog I'm looking for the shade man (laughs) and kind of like me I like to rest uh, we're we're getting into a, a plan of getting up earlier and earlier to try to work maybe two or three hours and then taking that siesta when it's so hot. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I firmly agree with that. We've uh, been getting up about 4.30 every day just to try to get going and get things uh, done before it gets really hot and then maybe get back out in the evening. Donna, you mentioned the monsoon weather pattern. You know, it's we're clouding up in the afternoon. Sometimes things are happening all night long, but they're splitting around us. It's either going north or it's going south. Okay. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just one of those things. Well, not that I'm wishing you any of the bad part of the monsoon weather, because we can have extreme weather when it's related to the monsoons. But I, I do wish you some moisture down there in the, the crop bearing portion of our state. We need it. Right. We uh, we pulled our alfalfa off the field, and of course there's uh, gopher activity out there, and I attempted to uh, set some traps in the ground, but the ground's so hard I can't even get a shovel into it, so i got to get water back on it first. <laughs> water, yeah. I, I have been doing some digging at my house. I just removed all of the orange daylilies, and uh, I had to do some serious watering before I could get the digging fork in. So yes, absolutely, it's hot and dry. Were you removing them because you didn't like them or moving them to a new location? I'm not a great orange fan, so they they need to accent some hot pink or something if if I'm going to grow orange, but they were sold on the marketplace on Facebook over the weekend. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you relocated them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to another happy owner. Yes, yes. So um, to get back to our grass issue, uh, I thought maybe I'd talk a little bit about how I recommend people water that will help sustain their lawns and get them through um, this droughty part of our season. I tend to recommend that you water the same way every time you water But in the spring and the fall, you don't have to water as frequently as you do in the summer months when it's so hot and dry. 
So usually in July and the first part of August here in Wyoming, those are the weeks that we, we really need to water more and more frequently. And I'm gardening now in a really sandy location. So I'm probably watering places in my yard, even though I drag a, a hose, I'm probably watering them every other day or at least every third day uh, to keep the grass somewhat green. And, and I'm not in a big push to keep my grass golf course green. I'm okay if it's a little bit yellow in the heat of summer because I'm not going out there barefoot and I don't have little tykes that are out there playing barefoot running through the sprinkler or anything like that. But we do want to keep the grass healthy. And the best way to keep grass healthy is to get its roots to grow deep in the layers of the soil. So if we water so that the moisture penetrates six to eight inches into the soil, those roots will grow into the cooler layers of the soil and they are more drought resistant when they're not right at the surface where it's likely to dry out if we have a a droughty season. This also helps when we get to talking about tomatoes and, and times when we go on vacation that might relate to another problem that we have in the in the garden this time of the year. But if you water every time, so the moisture penetrates six to eight inches, you will find in your yard that that's a certain number of minutes of watering. And then every time you water, you water for those number of minutes. You just- Well, it also, so Donna, it also depends on the um, the pressure and the volume of water that's coming out before you, yeah. it's helpful to understand that too, right? Right, yeah. So. You can't turn your water on just in a trickle one week and then turn it on full blast the next week. So if you have multiple people doing the watering, you kind of have to agree that you're going to set the water at a certain height or pressure in the hose. Uh, So if, if you have a teenager or somebody else that only helps with the watering a couple of times, maybe when you have to travel uh, and they have a tendency to either just barely turn it on or turn it on full blast, uh, maybe you need to come to consensus on on where the water needs to be set if you're going to do that. So hold on a second. This yeah. this opens up the great <laughs> one of the great spousal debates, right? Oh, no. So of course. so right. my the, uh, Diane and I are pretty much in agreement on how frequently to water the lawn. But my my parents, my dad wanted to water every day for like ten minutes. My mom is an every other day, every third day kind of waterer. I know many other spouses who have. That same debate, same disagreement on yep. what should be done on how to water correctly. Right, right. So if you use my method and, and both family members or uh, multiple family members are involved in checking to see how deep the moisture gets when, you, when you've watered, if you've already been watering for 20 minutes, say, and, and you want to check and see if the moisture gets deep enough in your soil, you can use a long screwdriver. I, I've per- actually purchased one that's uh, actually 14 inches long, so I can get it deep in the soil. And that's its purpose in life. It's in my garden bag. It's not in my tool bag. And if you push that screwdriver into the ground and it hits dry soil, deep in the soil, it'll hit. And it'll feel different than if you hit a rock. If you hit a rock, you kind of need to move the screwdriver to another place because that's not going to give you a good reading on the soil. But clay soil tends to get wet or moisten much more slowly than sand. And because of of the differences in our soil across the state, even from one neighbor to another, because oftentimes when a house is built, they dig out the foundation and toss all the excess in the back. So what, what you end up growing on in the backyard is not topsoil to start with and what's your topsoil is now underneath your soil underneath yeah <laughs> especially if there's any undulations in in the topography of your of your site but then oftentimes if the front isn't level they'll bring in topsoil from um, a construction supplier somewhere which means they they have soil from other construction sites that they don't need and they they move it from site to site so oftentimes your front yard soil is very different than your backyard soil so you kind of need to get to know the soil in your own yard and that will help you understand how much moisture that soil needs to maintain life and then it depends on what kind of plants you're growing there so but, I'm pretty, I'm pretty fortunate. All the soil around my house, 
I brought in, so I know exactly I know exactly where it came from okay. and exactly what it is. Okay, but it's different than the soil that was there when you started to build your house. Yes, uh-huh. yes, it is. Uh huh. So, so, so one of my one of my pet peeves is is on the south side of my lawn where there used to be a driveway, and so it was pretty rocky and pretty gravelly. And so you're right about the different soils in there, and that's the first place that'll start to burn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I've spent quite a bit of time picking rocks out of our soil, and right now I'm tossing them to the side, and I'm going to have to deal with them later. But uh, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of different kinds of gravel in Donna. Our, it's it's a our, whole lot easier to take care of them the first time you pick them up than well, the second or third time when to, you pick to them a up. certain extent. Yes, but I have a number of one gallon pots that are full of rocks right now. <laughs> Anyway, are you holding them down to keep them down in the from blowing away in the wind? No. Yeah. Well, it does help the pots from blowing away. But uh, anyway, once you tra- test your soil, if you find out that the moisture's only gone down four inches in twenty minutes, then you need to add another ten minutes or fifteen minutes until you get the moisture down six to eight inches for a lawn. And if there's trees or shrubs growing in the same area of the yard, then I recommend uh, the depth of the water needs to be 10 to 12 inches. That will supply enough water for all of those plants to grow in. And uh, one of the things we tend to forget is when we put in a new landscape, Jeff, uh, that as our, our trees and shrubs mature, that those lawns and and uh, trees and shrubs that are growing together will take more water. So all of those plants are made up of 60 to 80% water and a little tree that's three foot tall, 80% of water is a certain number of gallons, but a tree that gets to be 10 foot, 12 foot, 20 foot, 60 foot, there's a whole lot more water in that plant as it matures and you have to maintain the water level in that whole organism, not not just the, the roots. So, so Donna, that's that's why I plant trees and shrubs in trees and shrubs area and mulch around them. And then all my turf is totally separate from any but, other place. But tree roots spread three to five times the height of the tree. And I bet your mulch areas don't spread that far. Jerry's wow, thinking, that's, Jerry's that's thinking uh, out loud. <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, I'm doing sign language. That is is uh, quite remarkable in the fact that, you know, most people have a elm tree or some other kind of a large, tall tree. I think my elm trees are, no, no, yeah, they're cottonless cottonwoods. I'm sorry. That other kind of elm. That other kind of elm. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> but they're fairly large, tall trees. And to think that they're five times the roots, my whole turf is an underlayment of just roots. Your yard and probably two neighbors to either side of you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I used to have a co-worker here in Casper who also used to work in the same town as Jeff's mom. And he used to tell this story that when he moved into the house there, he went around the neighborhood and introduced himself and and explained this watering procedure to all of his neighbors and thanked them for watering his trees. <laughs> Perfect. So he, he promised that he would water the same way and water their trees. But knowing that, that trees' roots spread out widely to absorb the rainfall that, that they need to sustain themselves, because that's what trees do in nature. They, they spread out their roots and take up as much water as they, they need in their environment. But we in Wyoming put trees and shrubs and lawn in an environment where they would not grow if we didn't have an irrigation system. So Boy, that's the truth. We do have to provide all of the resources those trees and shrubs need because they can't just run next door and grab a Coke when it's too cold, too hot outside and, and they're running out of moisture. Can I borrow a cup of sugar? Right, right. So... This time of the year, when it starts getting hot, you have to water more and more frequently than you did in April and May. And then about mid-August, when it kind of begins to cool off, then we can begin to taper off and and water less and less frequently. So the best way to maintain lawns in our dry environment is to water deeply and water infrequently. Jeff, you want to interject? I have a question. Uh Uh-huh. 
would it be appropriate? So if your lawn has been kind of a lime green color all mm -hmm. summer long, would it be appropriate when the temperature starts to cool down to maybe aerate and maybe fertilize? Yes, but the key is when the temperatures cool off. But not before, too late, so you're losing that fertilizer, right? right? So before we get that far, I'm just going to interject that you want to wait until the top inch or two dries out before you water again. Oh, okay. Sorry to interrupt you. That's okay. Don't want to lose track of that. So, yeah. you know, if, if in April it stays moist for 10 days, then you don't need to turn the irrigation on. But in July, if it dries out in a day, then you've probably got to water every other day. And if you got a cool day in between, you may skip another day before you need to water. But you have to pay attention to what's going on with the lawn. And the lawn will tell you when it needs water. Um, you can walk across it. And if the blades don't spring back up from, from your footprints, it's time to water. If they stand back up, you probably can wait another day. It's another okay. way. I, so, I have areas like that right now. So we don't want to fertilize when it's the heat of summer because we push a lot of succulent tender new growth and all of that new growth needs water. So it's much easier for that grass to dry out if it's it's tender succulent new growth than if we're just maintaining the grass that's already there and maybe a little bit of normal plant growth because we're going to mow some in the heat of summer. But oh, once, once really we're, we're we're trying to maintain a healthier root system so right. that when it does cool off, those plants can recover. Yeah. So the other thing with lawns, boy, we're going down the lawn tunnel. If you maintain the grass at a height of three inches and plan to mow every time the lawn gets to four inches, you're only going to remove a quarter of the plant every time you mow. And that taller lawn plant will help shade the soil below it which will help keep the roots happier because they want to be cool. And uh, the cooler roots and the thick grass will help prevent any weeds from succeeding in, in the germination process. So you'll be more likely to be weed-free if you maintain that grass at a, at a taller height. I, I also have a measuring tool with me that we all care. Well, I should say most all of us carry with us. And I usually teach this in my Master Gardener class. It's a little bit hard to show you the visual on the radio, but I'm going to use the visual right now. Most of us have a finger that is about three inches long. And if you add the space between where your thumb is and the first knuckle, you get four inches. So from the, the padded part right below your above your thumb to your index finger is about four inches long. And then to that first joint where your your pointer finger joins your uh, the palm of your hand is about three inches. So if it gets as tall as that padded area by your thumb, it's time to mow. And when you mow, it should be as long as your index finger. Jerry gets as, it. As a general I get it. Okay. Because so, you know what? I've what? I've I've elevated the my mower head and that is a great way to, to say, okay, it's time to mow. Uh -huh. uh, I happen to try to mow every Thursday morning because that's when my neighbor and I attack both of our lawns. Competitive mowing. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> uh, agreeable mowing. Because we mow. <laughs> he trims. I get on the, on the rider and, and we go to town. <laughs> and Myrna gets on the weed eater. So, right. <laughs> yes. Yes. so it's a, it's a, it's a semi-community project. So I have a chiropractor question, unless maybe you've retired since since I knew. No, I, I have not retired. Thank you. My chiropractor takes Thursdays off. So is it a chiropractor thing that you take the Thursdays to do all the now, other things that you have to do? I'm not week? sure what your chiropractor is doing, but I'm taking care of my lawn and making sure and, and garden. I, I do a little gardening while it's cool. But uh, I think I might know your chiropractor because I know that he takes off Thursdays. So I'm thinking all <laughs> chiropractors take off Thursdays. So. No, <laughs> no. It's just like anything else. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got their way of doing things. Going back to everybody being in agreement on how to water, I think is one of the most funniest things I've ever seen in my life because I have neighbors who one turns the water on 
and one comes along and turns the water off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's one of those. You're listening this morning, Jerry. Oh, I'm sure they are, and and uh, you know, I won't say who they are. You know, but, but when, they know. When, when you have a spouse, there are just certain things that you have disagreements on, and the lawn, watering the lawn, seems to be one of them, and I don't, uh, I don't understand why that yeah. is. <laughs> and and how to make the garden oh it's got to be this way no it doesn't it's, it's whatever way that works yeah and those rows better be straight dang it or you know they're <laughs> right <laughs> now i've i've dealt with a lot of farmers and most of them will say that a crooked row you can put more produce into a crooked row than a straight row <laughs> there you go that's, that's Except, right so are they doing zigzag planting <laughs> probably not <laughs> if they're drowsy they are <laughs> and if they're drowsy then they're taking some of their product out when they cultivate yeah it's those it's those sequential things after you plant that uh, cause problems right yeah yep 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 <laughs> no so very good we, um can we so, get back to the fertilization now oh absolutely yeah, let's continue okay. on with fertilization or the possibility of fertilization yeah. let's well before we get there let's talk about a fall aeration is that a good thing it is if you have thatch. Now, if you've done it every year for the past 10 years in the spring, you may not need to do it in the fall. If you haven't done it ever in the past 10 years, you may need to do it in the fall and maybe next spring as well. But if you have thatch that's building up, which is as a spongy layer of dead root tissue at the soil surface, and it creates kind of a hydrophobic layer, an area where soil moisture does not penetrate into the soil. And any new roots that grow into that thatch are actually going to be more exposed to the air than they are to the protective layers of the soil. So the lawn's going to want to dry out faster. So if you can remove plugs of just a little bit of that, that lawn every so often, whatever the spacing on the core aerator is, I've never measured that. Then you can remove some of your soil. And then if you rake those plugs off, you can add them to your compost pile or some other place where you're trying to add organic matter. Um, rake the plugs your, off? What do you, Who's got time to rake the well, plugs? Because <laughs> when you do that, then you can add a half inch of peat moss to your lawn and rake it so it goes down into, this, into those holes and you add organic matter to your lawn. Again, who has time to do that? Oh, Jeff. <laughs> here's, here's what I'm going to say. Man, I'd like to have you take care of my lawn. Uh, I don't, <laughs> my lawn doesn't get pampered as much well, as what you're saying. I, so Donna, I, don't rake, I don't rake the plugs either. So okay. Donna, if Jerry and I rent a, rent a uh, Air, aerator. aerator and we do that, then you can come to our house and rake for us. Okay, then I get the plugs. Okay, done deal. You can take them home with you. <laughs> <laughs> I want now, some of your uh, crop growing soil from down there. To well, bring yeah, up here to put on my um, dormant sand dune. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, Donna, can I can I ask a, a hypothetical? If you do go ahead and you you would suggest putting peat moss on and putting that in the holes. Have you seen those little? hydrophilic water loving pellets that absorb water that you put into some kind of a clay pot or something so you can keep your soil uh, moisture longer would you ever ever consider I, putting it into those holes i, I love the donna's face here i i think i know what you're going to get there jerry <laughs> yeah i do too peat moss um, polyacrylamide crystals there you are so I, I actually bought some this spring because we put in a part of our new lawn. We're putting in a, a drought-resistant variety. It's called dog tough grass, and it comes as a plug. And the instructions that came with it said to dip each of those plugs in the polyacrylamide gel and plant it to help keep those, those plugs well-watered as they got started. It also recommended planting um, annual ryegrass with the planting so that the ryegrass would grow up and nurse the plugs of, the, of our new uh, desired grass and then it would die out because it's an annual grass. So 
we did use the polyacrylamide gel on all the plugs and they seem to be doing really well, but boy, annual ryegrass is very vigorous compared to this new grass that we're putting in. So it's going to be interesting when, when the, the ryegrass is gone and, and I can see what's going on with the spreading grass that we planted. Have you cut your ryegrass yet? A few times, yes. Yes, and it still is vigorous? Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. You, so, must be water- you must be watering appropriately. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I use it for that purpose. I used it for that purpose. I actually don't particularly like it in my containers or other things, and I doubt that I would recommend using it in the lawn partially because I think it holds the water in those little crystals and I don't think it releases them to the plants as well as it might because that's what it's intended to do. So I almost think it's counterproductive, but I don't know of any research that shows that my idea is right or the other idea is right. I I don't know. It's not something I normally would have used, but because our sand, our soil in our house is sand, and I didn't want to lose those expensive plugs. I did go ahead and get the polyacrylamide gel crystals. And I, I kind of hate to be admitting this. We got the finer crystals from the conservation district and hydrated them. And it was still kind of chunky. And I tried dipping the plugs in it and it didn't really stick. Didn't stick to them. So I actually got my blender out. <laughs> Your hand mixer? <laughs> yeah, the one I cut my hand on when I first got it. But anyway, I got the blender out and blended it. So it was kind of like a smoothie. And then I dipped the plugs in it and it worked really well to coat them. And they all seem to be doing really well, even though it's quite warm and dry on my sandy soil. But uh, this is a lot of labor to go to just because I did not want it to fail. Yeah. So um, the the, re- the primary reason I bring up the possibility of aerating in the fall is that it's easier for me to locate my sprinkler heads when I have water running through the system. I think that, you know, okay, so go rent the aerator, turn on all your zones, mark all your nozzles, and then aerate around them so you don't hit them. Uh, right, and tip right. them or break yeah. them or whatever. So that's one of the reasons it, it's easy. It would be easier for me to do it in the fall than it would be in the spring when I don't have the system turned on yet. I'm guessing somewhere you have a map of your sprinkler system. No. Okay. I have a, I have a mental map of two of them, two okay. or three of the areas, but okay. the other one, it's like, I don't know where any of that goes. So one of the other things I've been pushing with with homeowners over here real recently is leaving a record with the house if if you're ever going to move. And of course, most people don't plan on moving. They just retire and then somebody else eventually moves into the house. We won't explain why. But there's no record of, of the sprinkler system or what trees are planted in the yard, or what variety of lawn is planted in the yard. And it would be really nice if homeowners that are leaving their place to someone else to garden in a future uh, year would leave a record for future potential homeowners. Yeah, but it makes an interesting puzzle to try to figure out. Especially when they get a core aerator out and they punch (laughs) holes in the (laughs) unknown pipelines. So isn't that the reason you call uh, nine... No, 811. 811. No. They won't locate in your own yard. No, they don't locate uh, irrigation systems. You have to figure that out on your own, yeah. unless you have a lawn guy that knows where your, your lines are. But yeah, so I would recommend if you have a map to, to leave it somewhere where somebody else can find it in the future. In that, that drawer with the uh, uh, owner's manuals. So I, I think I gave it to Diane and said, here, you might want to file this for later. So I, I think I think some of the maps we have, not all of them, yeah. but I can't even remember where the electrical lines are. We did a project. We did a project recently and went through an electrical line. So <laughs> of my own, which I put in originally. So, you know, it's just one of those things. Okay. Well, well are you going re- to remember it this time? Uh, well, hopefully we don't have to dig it up again. <laughs> but Donna, that is a great idea. So I, I great, can always great idea. wonder why stuff isn't buried at least a foot deep. 
the stuff that's buried eight inches, six inches, we, we actually ran into a cable line planting a tree and it was like four inches below the surface. So I was not expecting it when I stood on the shovel and all chopped sudden, right through it. Well, at least through the coating. And we've done line locates, but I didn't expect it that close to the soil surface. Sure. And actually the locate was about 18 inches off to the north. So uh, they aren't perfect, that's for sure. Hey, on that note, let's take a break and listen to our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. Looking for the best way to keep up with all the news from University of Wyoming Extension, the College of Agriculture, and Wyoming Ag Experiment Stations? The UWAGnews.com website features real-time education, research, and extension events, and feature stories from across the state. Bookmark UWAGnews.com today and subscribe to our monthly email newsletter, UWAGnews.com, growing people, knowledge, and communities. Hey, Wyoming, have a question? Ask an expert. Go to ask.extension.org. Ask an Expert offers a one-to-one expert answer from Cooperative Extension, university staff, and volunteers with participating land-grant institutions from across the United States to give you real-time, real-life answers to your hard questions. If you have a question, just ask. We're here to help. Okay, everybody, we're back. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. I'm Jeff Edwards, and my co-host is Jerry Urshbeck. Jerry, you've been kind of quiet today. A little bit. Donna has had a lot of interesting ideas in regard to uh, line locate, making maps of your your house, and the most important part, how to water your lawn so it's successful. Donna, what about fertilization? So Jeff mentioned uh, core aerating and then fertilizing earlier, and it is a good thing to do in combination with with each other, partially because the fertilizer can get down into some of those holes. You get some of the fertilizer right on the surface that'll penetrate with the water into the soil, and then you get some of those uh, fertilizer pellets down into the deeper layers of the soil, and it helps to fertilize the deeper roots. And then if you can add the peat moss, that'll help add some organic matter, which of course will add to the nutrient down the road. But one of the things I wanted to touch on with fertilizer is that you want to get that fertilizer on after the heat of summer. So at least after the 15th of August is a good gauge, but I say after the temperatures get out of the 90s. And then you probably want to try to keep a rule of thumb that you want to get the fertilizer on the ground by about September 15th because if, if we get an early snow in October and that fertilizer has been on after the 15th of September, you may have a lot of succulent new growth on that snowfall. And that's the year that we'll end up getting snow mold on the lawn from all that succulent new growth that lays under the snow uh, all winter long. When I lived down in Laramie, I remember a few snowfalls that happened in October and that snow stayed until the melt in the spring. And in those cases, if you had succulent, tender new grass under that snow that laid there all winter long, there won't be any grass there when the thaw comes because it will have turned to mush because of that snow mold. Mm. Mushy, nasty. It's gross. (laughs) Part of why I have a flower bed in front of my house where the snow drift forms instead of turf grass now. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So you wanted to talk about, Jerry, you had, wanted to talk about tomatoes. Tomatoes. So some, uh, some of my friends brought in one of their tomatoes and it had blight. And he says, what do you think? And I said, oh, it looks like blight. She says, yeah, that's what the garden center said. What do you, what do, you do about it? And I said, pull it up. But what I, I would like to ask if you had tomatoes on a tomato that had developed blight, and blight is when the the leaves curl up and start to look crispy. Uh, are the tomatoes still good on those? Do you, do you just can't just pull the rest and you put any of those tomatoes out on a cardboard box and try to make them get a little riper and use so, them? So blight is the viral disease of tomatoes and potatoes. And did you talk, did you say blight in potatoes first or did you say blight in tomatoes only? Tomatoes only. Tomatoes only. Okay. So me 
personally, I don't know that I would want to try to save them to get them to ripen up to 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 consume. I don't know, Donna. What? How do you feel about that? Well, we we can't catch the tomato virus. It's it's not transferable to humans, so right. we're going to get sick from eating it. I don't know that I would spend the energy to ripen it. But if I had a really good recipe for a green tomato salsa or fried green tomatoes, which I'm open to getting a recipe for. Um, uh, so did you? That was a hint. Anybody, if if, if anybody has a recipe for fried green tomatoes, Donna would like the recipe. I've had them. Send it to us. We'll to send it to Donna. And uh, I've really enjoyed them, but I've never made them. Anyway, um, I would probably use them if I could use them right away. And especially like a fried green tomato, you're not going to look at it. So even if it has the weird blotches on it, it, it's okay. We're not going to get sick from it. And if you're worried about getting sick from it, it's cooked. So I think it'd be okay to do something like that with the tomatoes. I don't know that I would I would put the energy into wrapping them in newspaper and trying to ripen them. Right. But, but they would be safe to eat. Yeah, I don't think that their uh, shelf life would be very good. Probably I think not. that they would probably rot Well, maybe before they reach full ripeness before they get there. And from what I've seen is that once you have one plant that, that goes into a blight, if you remove it, completely from your growing area, you may or may not have the blight in the next tomato plant. Right. Right. The sooner the better, but don't remove it to your compost pile. Get that thing out of the yard and away from anything else green. Yeah. 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 Don't throw it in your neighbor's yard either. Bag it, bag it, landfill. It's good. Bag it and tag it, Donna. Oh, yeah. So here, here's the here's the other key. Where does it come from? It's just inherent in our soils, isn't that correct? To me, and I think that we had a program with uh, Bill Stump a while ago that was um, on Barnyards and Backyards Live, and he mentioned that blight is airborne and in the soil. And there are okay. also insects that vector it. Particularly but, things that have piercing sucking mouth part that but, feed on tomatoes. What we do recommend if you have the blight to rotate out of that area with those potato, tomato, eggplant crops. Peppers. Peppers. And and three years later, you should be able to come back to that same spot. So it's not necessarily in the soil no matter what. Over time, it, the population of the virus will die off diminishes and then you diminish and then you then you can plant back into the area yeah now personally i've i've gardened in that same area for almost 30 years so and we do try to rotate there's only so much rotation you can achieve but the people that brought in their tomatoes said we've never had tomatoes here before we've moved in and here it is and we're really disappointed because they were looking so good so if it's an insect vector, there's not a whole lot they can do about it. Right. So they've been in this spot gardening in this area for quite some time, but they've not had their tomato in that spot before, or um, at least not in the last few years, or their new residence in that garden. Their new residence in that spot, and this is the first year of growing tomatoes. So they could have been tomatoes there from a previous owner. There sure. could have been potatoes there that had... The, t- the same virus last year before they moved in. And then, and if they put tomato right where the potato was, it's still susceptible to the same disease. If only they had a map. If only, yeah. <laughs> Planting history. <laughs> so Jerry, that's part of that legacy book that you're going to be leaving to your grandkids. You know, all those plants that uh, you didn't take care of. Yep. <laughs> well, no, we take care of them. And that's why they are legacy plants. That's why they're growing so well is because we leave them alone. <laughs> so you just need to have a legacy map of the whole thing. Yep. Turn, it, turn it into a treasure book for something later on, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, like that guy that put the treasure out and had everybody up and down the Rocky Mountains looking for it yep. for, what, 10 years? And something that was like finally that. found. Finally found, yeah. Yeah. You know, Jerry, I think you had another tomato question before we... I, I did, and it and it's called tomato end blossom rot. Sort the of. Tomato, the tomato has actually grown off of the stem, and the end of the tomato starts to go to mush. What are your comments on that? 
It's not a disease. It's a calcium deficiency. So tell us how to put calcium into your tomatoes. We We have lots of calcium in our water and in our soil. That's what the white stuff is on your faucet if you don't soak it in vinegar on a regular basis. If we're not watering well, then the plants can't take up the calcium that's already there, so you get a deficiency. So the problem is actually uh, an inconsistent watering problem, and often it's referred to as vacationer's disease because when we take a a 10-day vacation or two-week vacation in the middle of summer and we leave the neighbor teenager in charge of watering for us. Hey, now that's the second time you've uh, been cruel to teenagers, so, you know. Well, that's the problem is we we don't always do that walkthrough like we would expect to happen with our spouse. You can say others, other people. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) other family members, other household members that we're sharing the house with so that you, you're setting the sprinkler at the same pressure, running it for the same amount of time. So oftentimes we don't give enough instruction on what we really want to do. But oftentimes I, I did the same thing when I was a teenager. I loved gardening, but if I could get it done in 10 minutes and nobody knew any different, I had other things I was off to do. It was easy to chop the, the project in half and and still i did it so i mean i would be young young and irresponsible again right yeah i mean (laughs) there's only so many minutes in the day and you got to enjoy them to the fullest right (laughs) anyway so i'm not accusing any teenager of anything that i do (laughs) but anyway uh (laughs) if the plant's not getting enough water to absorb the calcium that's in the soil because calcium will come into the plant with the water, then they get this calcium deficiency that forms on the end of the on the end of the fruit where the blossom was attached. So it's called blossom end rot, and it can be in peppers, it can be in eggplant. If we were getting fruit on our potatoes, Jeff, we might get blossom end rot on the bottom of those little juicy berries as well. But we tend to notice it on our tomatoes first, and maybe on some peppers. Uh, after that. But if the water is applied consistently, so there's never uh, an up and a down with water apply, if, if there's always consistent water available to those plants, it should be able to get plenty of calcium. So there are some kind of home remedies on on how to supply additional calcium to the plants. Uh, I don't think there's any need to go into them because I think that just reiterates those rumors. Okay. So my brother-in-law... My brother-in-law wants to eat them. I would say, and I told him that if he cuts that end rot off, uh, it'd probably be okay to eat. Mm-hmm. But consistent watering. Mm-hmm. Yes. All righty. That works for a lot of stuff, doesn't it? In this dry land <laughs> part of the world, the most important thing we give our plants is water. Yes. So Does that I, sound like a chiropractic instruction as well? <laughs> to drink a lot of water? water. Lots of water. Right after you get adjusted, you bet. Okay. <laughs> right? Because then, you know, everybody says, oh, I'm so stiff and sore. Well, you were stiff and sore before you came in. Now we manipulate you, and now you're stiff and sore. To negate that, you drink a lot of water. So I was listening, and I heard something kind of kind of remarkable. NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, June, our June was the third warmest June on record. And it was, it tied for third with June of 2015 and June of 2020. And I didn't get the other June, but that's kind of significant because we've all been complaining it's hot. So the third, uh, third warmest June on record, according to NOAA. And it will probably show in our water bills. Oh, there's another thing. You know, you, you talk about how important it is to water deeply and not so frequently, but water deeply. Some people aren't watering because of the water bill. And starting a new lawn can be rather expensive as well. So if one were starting a new lawn, you would want to wait until like later on in the fall, September maybe to start your lawn. It depends on if you're starting it from seed or from sod or from plugs and when 
in my case, when plugs are available, they're not available in the fall. They were available in the spring. Oh, yeah. But if you're starting from seed, the fall is a really good time to start because you're headed into the cooler weather. You know those plants aren't going to have to go through the heat of summer before they get a, a really good root system established. And oftentimes the soil is warm enough that a good root system will start before the freezes and, and snowfall come for our, it's not even winter when we start getting winter weather. And not requiring nearly the amount of water to keep the soil right. moist. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So is this a good time to start your, your fall gardens? You know, starting to plant those radishes and root crops. The, well, maybe the, not the, maybe not the really short season stuff. Uh, Diane and so I are still contemplating uh, doing another planting of sweet corn and in, in the high tunnel and trying to see if we can get it to make, but um, it might be just a little bit early for some of those things. Uh, so our greens, our radishes, those types of things, maybe the middle of August when it starts to cool down a little bit. Oh because yeah. They're such short season, right? Radishes can uh, develop in 50 days and the greens and those types of things. So uh, your season should be long enough to get them to mature. Mark yeah. was just talking about wanting to plant some more broccoli because our broccoli did not succeed this spring. And so we were looking at a planting chart that is based on when our last frost-free day is. And he probably should have planted the broccoli about 10, 12 days ago. Right. But I think he's going to go ahead and try to get some broccoli in the ground and see if we can get broccoli to succeed in the fall where it, it didn't succeed this spring. Are you going to put that in your uh, greenhouse, Donna, or in well, your high tunnel? I'm kind of contemplating having him put it in containers and leave it outside for now. And oh, then yeah. move, it, move it into the high tunnel uh, so that we can protect it if, if the weather turns iffy. That's a really good idea. You, um, before we started and before we wrap up today, you uh, wanted to know about um, insects, skeleton, skeletal, well, I can't even say that word today, skeletalizing. Skeletonizing? Uh, skeletalizing uh, the leaves of squash plants? Yes. So are there any insects around when they go to look at it? Well, here, I'll read you this. It says, something has been attacking my big leaf vegetables like squash, pumpkin, cantaloupe, and sunflowers. The leaves are turned lacy. Have never seen any insects. Perhaps they are very small. No, my tomatoes and peas are not affected. Uh, let's see. So, flea beetles are a possibility. Uh -huh. Grasshoppers, small grasshoppers would skeletonize things before uh, the uh, the big ones just consume everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, those would be my top two. However, I don't know why they aren't seeing them on the plant. Right. Well, if there's flea beetles, they may not know to look that closely. Yeah, yeah. So the other pest you brought up has become a pest in my yard this year, which, of course, we're kind of anticipating for the whole year everywhere in the state. The G pest? That one, yes. Is, <laughs> yeah. it, is it too late to start using uh, grasshopper bait, or have we kind of reached the, the point of the year where it's just revenge killing? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's it's an interesting year to me because um, a lot of times in the past, everything hatches out at the same time. All the grasshoppers seem to be the same age. That's not this year. No, uh, I see grasshoppers that are half or three quarters of an inch. And I saw one the other day that was an inch and three quarter or more. Right. So I have in my yard, I have all life stages. I have some that are just newly emerging. I have some that are winged adults. So I would say that the bait product would still be a good way to go uh, to try to control them or uh, conventional insecticides as well. If, if people choose to do that, I, I don't think it's too late. Uh, to take care of some of those smaller ones. The larger ones, you probably aren't going to kill those. But I think we're going to be in for several years of grasshopper issues, yeah. which is unfortunate, but that it's cyclical and that's the way it works. Yeah, we have had all kinds of um, blister beetle issues here in Natrona County and, and across the border close by in Converse County. And one that I have not seen since I was a kid, when I was taking the entomology project in 4-H, I found this little beetle that I didn't know what it was then, but it was in our kochia weeds in the sheep pasture. 
And I just thought this little beetle was the cutest thing. I just was so cute. Somebody needed to put it in a kid's book. And I haven't seen them since we lived in the place where we lived when I was a teenager. Are they the big black ones or the gray ones? They're the spotted ones. The gray and black spotted ones? Gray with black spots on them, but they're called a spotted. Uh, Anyway, someone uh, in Rolling Hills has had an infestation of them, and they didn't know where they came from, how they ended up clear out there again on that dormant sand dune north of Glenrock. And, uh, of course, it's because the grasshopper population is is exploded then the predator uh the beneficial uh that that feeds on the the younger grasshoppers or the the uh, grasshopper eggs, eggs. Yep. and so those populations have have exploded which of course is going to mean we're going to have to keep an eye on it uh in the hay yeah. because that's where they they send, tend to end up and then they become a big problem for our hay producers for uh horses hay, hay consumers too yeah, the consumers more than our producers. Yeah. And, you know, um, the adults, the adult lister beetles are uh, uh, feed on flowers. So that's why they're attracted to the uh, alfalfa. And if uh, folks are willing to cut their alfalfa prior to it blooming, they shouldn't have that much of a problem uh, with blister beetles. But that's the thing. We get this big influx of a prey species, and then we have the predators and the parasites and everything else start showing up a little bit later but I am seeing a lot of different predators out and about uh, that I haven't seen in a while. So uh, there's there's plenty of food mm-hmm. <laughs> for things. So, Jeff, would you suggest leaving a small strip of alfalfa to go to bloom to bring those blister beetles on? Trap crop? So they would eat some of the grasshopper larvae? Uh, well, so the adults don't eat the larvae. The, it's the immature uh, blister beetles that hunt down the the eggs of the um, grasshoppers. So So not the adults. Well, you want the adults to lay the eggs, but yeah, that would be a beneficial thing. You know, the yeah, it's, it's one of those 50, you know, how do you make the best choice? But grasshoppers most commonly occur in the borders of alfalfa. And if you left a strip uh, around a ditch, around a pipe, something, the the uh, blister beetles will be attracted to those areas where it's flowering. That's usually where the grasshoppers are. So there's a little bit higher chance that they are out there, do, the predators are out there doing what they need to be doing. Yeah. yeah. I've actually discovered about five or six praying mantis in my yard. Yeah. I've, yep. kind of, I've kind of been hoping they will take care of some of the three-quarter inch grasshoppers. I'm not sure if, if they, they rip the heads off of grasshoppers or if it's just there's their uh, significant others that that, that happens well, with, with the praying. No, they, they, they consume the whole grasshopper except for the legs usually and move on okay. to the next one. So okay. yeah, they're, they're pretty good predators. Uh, you know what? I think we have consumed a whole hour. I, I hate to shut us off, but Donna, we appreciate you being yeah. our guest today. I'm sure we'll have you on again before the end of the season. I always enjoy the visit and, and I'm sorry to have taken up so much of the conversation, but I hope it was beneficial. For everybody <laughs> hey, if Jerry wanted to talk, he could have interrupted you at any I point. I could have interrupted at any time at all. Hey, thank you for promoting chiropractic. Yes. It was a great, it was a great segue. Always a pleasure talking with the both of you. Thank you so much. Yep. Thank you both very much. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Lawn and Garden with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Thanks for listening. 